Hi, I am Brent Feldman, and we're back with another episode of Mix and Matchbox. Today, I have Elliot Frick joining me. He is the founder of Big Wide Sky, and uh, and we'll kind of just jump right into these questions here. So, how hi, how are you doing, Elliot? I'm doing well, Brent. Thank you uh, for having me on your show. It's uh, it's always fun to talk with you. Definitely good to chat with you too. And I guess maybe uh, unbeknownst to the listeners, uh, there there's a winter apocalypse happening outside too. <laughs> well, and ironically enough, it's Winter Storm Elliot. Oh, oh have really? you heard that they named the storm? No, yeah. uh, I'm so sorry uh, yeah. that apparently your name is terrorizing the Midwest. That's, here. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, but uh, honestly, it is so good to have you on. I know that we've had a couple conversations before, and it's uh, it's cool to be able to you know kind of dig in on a few questions here. So I'll, I'll start out you know pretty basic. Uh, you know, as you're the founder of Big White Sky, um, how did that agency come to exist? Uh, well, uh, I'll give you the really short version. Um, you know, I, I studied uh, music and philosophy when I was in college. I always make the joke that I was. Um, and uh, then when I when I got, played music for a living for a while, and uh, uh, you know, got got deeply engaged in in marketing because uh, we wanted to actually make money while we were playing music, which is extraordinarily difficult to do. And uh, you know, um, but but we you know we did all right. Uh, but it was because I I, I worked a lot with the couple of other musicians that uh you know had their own bands and we would you know sort of play music together and and market together and we figured out a lot of stuff uh fairly early in the game you know we were doing email marketing in the you know i don't know early mid 90s um we played a lot of uh, college parties and that sort of thing and they all had email uh so and and it just you know through the way that the, uh sort of serendipitous routes that sort of you know, pop up in life. Uh, I ended up uh, getting a job at an advertising agency. Um, and so, uh, you know, in my work in, in advertising, uh, I became sort of obsessed with uh, how the, the challenges that I was seeing uh, on the client side and how those, those challenges uh, would end up resulting in you know, work around marketing and advertising, but that the origins of them were deeper and had to do with things like organization development and, you know, uh, the sort of uh, psychosocial components of working in a business and uh, um, management theory and all kinds of other stuff. Uh, and it was just those experiences and then working in other agencies and uh, working client side and all that, just seeing all this stuff up close. And finally, I was like, I got to, you know, I got to do sort of my own thing and try to solve this in a way that's bigger than than just advertising. And so that's kind of how it how it came to be. That's awesome. Uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, with uh, Derek, maybe, but I, I had him on the podcast. He was the uh, founder of Evolve and much the same started out in a band using marketing tactics, I guess, to promote that. And, uh, and and found his way uh, eventually into an agency. So uh, I feel like that's got to be a common thread, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think you and I were talking about this, uh, you know, before we started recording that uh, the relationship between music and business is actually much deeper than uh, people realize, uh, you know, in the abstract, at least. I mean, musicians are often not good business people but that doesn't mean that there isn't an important connection between understanding music and understanding business definitely just running a big old band <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> oh yeah just the the psychological dynamics of it uh you know the, the 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 compulsion to create something meaningful and interesting and compelling uh with other people who are also creative type people is a crazy thing to do. I mean, this is why bands are notorious for having all kinds of conflict and infighting and whatever. And oh boy, you know, if you're if you're going to do that, if you're going to try to have that same motivation in business, like we're going to do something really compelling and creative and meaningful, you're going to have those same sorts of conflicts. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, sometimes to produce great work, uh, that it it can't all be 
uh, done on the idea that everybody's going to agree all the time, but that forces to, you know, better work, uh, tough decisions. And it just, sometimes it goes that way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, how would you say, I guess, um, your agency model is maybe different from other agency models? Uh, well, it's weird because, uh, we, we, don't have a clear category. I mean, sometimes we call ourselves an agency. Sometimes we call ourselves a consultancy. Um, sometimes we call ourselves a design consultancy. Um, and I, you know, I, I think on some level maybe we're 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 trying to create a category, uh, but that's really difficult to do from a marketing perspective. So I don't worry too much about it. Um, but that kind of maybe is a way in because um, you know I don't want to sort of I don't know preempt uh, other questions that I know you want to ask. But like I think that um, you know w- w- part of what compels me and I think what animates our philosophy in many ways is this idea that we have in the developed world and in, in Western culture certainly, but anywhere that. Uh, the industrial revolution has touched which is pretty much almost everywhere in the world like that we have this pretty significant uh what i call a crisis of meaning um and and the reason is that uh without getting too obnoxious about the philosophy here um the sort of the sort of philosophical posture of the um of the industrial revolution which is inherited from the enlightenment and the scientific revolution is this idea that everything is ultimately reducible to math. Um, everything is formalizable, algorithmatizable, uh, that you can essentially analogize everything to a machine. You know, everything is a machine. Um, and uh, the, the problem with that is that uh, things like meaning and love and soul uh, are, are illegible to a formal machine. They're not algorithmatizable, right? Um, and there's all kinds of interesting stuff, incidentally, around uh, philosophy of of mind uh, that contends with this challenge, right? Like, how? What about our consciousness? Um, and what about love? And what about meaning? Like, what are those things if we have to uh, formally declare everything in, as an algorithm, as a machine? And, and you know, a committed what uh, what are known as materialists, people who believe that everything really is just a material stuff doing things. You know, one of the positions they take on this is that those things are epiphenomenal. That, in other words, our consciousness, uh, you know, maybe it exists, but it doesn't have any actual impact on reality. So love, whatever, you know, the experience you had when you first fell in love or you, you know, had a child or whatever, those experiences uh, from a consciousness perspective and the meaning that you see in it is is just sort of incidental. It doesn't really matter. It's not, it doesn't, in in some ways you could say it, it almost doesn't exist. So at any rate, so I think this is a big problem that like everybody experiences in the developed world. And the way that we go about trying to solve problems in business is because we already analogize everything to a machine, we just keep trying to like turn the knobs or pull the levers or, you know, adjust the settings on the machine to solve the problems. And, And hey, you know, I mean, those things that are formally declarable, that are algorithmatizable, can be adjusted through those mechanisms but unfortunately you've got human beings all over the place in companies i mean ostensibly this is why companies exist to serve human needs um so you know all those things that have to do with meaning uh are are not going to be adjustable through those mechanisms so the way we're different is that oh and there's one more piece to this which is that the agency side of the world which is where sort of like all the right brain thinkers for the most part are uh, who like resist often the idea that what's important about what they do can be captured by a machine or in the model of a machine. Uh, You know, they, they often have some very useful ways of thinking about these problems that are really human, Uh, but they often don't get entree at the top levels of, you know the organizations they work with the clients uh, to solve these big deep problems often the ones of course who do get entree are the consultants who have mbas from wharton 
who put everything in a spreadsheet, right? And so uh, what we're trying to do is not so much split the difference, but uh, synthesize something uh, as, an, as, a, as a firm where we can say, hey, we're going to use uh, sort of meaningful, right brain, creative kinds of thinking uh, and apply it to the challenge of, you know, these big intractable problems that have to do with the crisis of meaning in organizations. We respect spreadsheets. We use them. We respect algorithmizing things. We create algorithms. We create technology. But our real value, what makes us unique, is the way that we think about how to solve these big problems that revolve around uh, our collective inability to deal effectively with mean with meaning. That's cool. Um, it's a real, you know, um, it's a different way of, you know, looking at the traditional, uh, you know, sort of way that maybe other agencies might approach things or, you know, consultancies. It is funny. Uh, I, I think I was talking to you just, you know, the other week about that book uh, from Jill Lepore, If Then, all about the Simulmatics Corporation that, you know, they were they were using um, uh, behavioral science in the 1950s and 1960s to really, you know, start working on those models that, you know, have now, uh, you know, made it into the Cambridge Analytica's of the world, you know, the, right. the Facebooks, the anybody who's leveraging big data in order to understand people. But it, it's so funny, you know, even at that time, how um, I think people were upset about it being so sterile in a way, and it really reducing things down to a point to where, yeah, there, there, there was a a, a material lack of meaning, and, uh, and, and there's still there's so much room for I feel like. Um, that kind of uh, thought in some of these processes where I feel like uh, there's there's a common belief that data will solve everything. And I definitely, I don't think that's true. <laughs> well, I, it, you know, I mean, it's interesting because what you're talking about, uh, it, it's not a simple problem. Like the, the way that we've tried to solve this in the past, and by we, I mean, collectively, you know, the, the Western world or the industrial world or whatever, is that you have like sort of romantic thinkers that, come in and say, oh, well, you know, just screw all the, you know, mechanical stuff and the spreadsheets and none of that is where anything is at. And it's all about just vibing, man, and whatever, you know, uh, and, and, and I maybe sound a little bit dismissive, but there are extraordinarily compelling and deep thinkers who, uh, who are in that camp, right? Uh, but it's true that like behavioral genetics is real, you know, like, uh, I think people uh, overestimate the ability that parents have to influence the behavior of their children over time. Like, you know, you really have to work hard to, to like either as a parent to either have a profound positive or negative impact on your children. We, nobody wants to believe that, but it's just the data shows it's true. So, but the thing is, is that behavior is the sort of the residue of the cognitive traits that are that are the things that we don't really understand well you know like it's cognition human cognition that we have a hard time with uh, that the machine that the formalized machine has a hard time with but yeah once it turns into behavior and there's stuff that you can measure like where did somebody click and how long did they hover over something and you know uh did they, you know, that kind of behavior uh or that kind of data that comes from behavior uh, really can be turned into formal algorithmizable stuff. Uh, but the mistake is in thinking that because you can do that, that you've captured what's going on cognitively and therefore you can address the problem, the problems that arise from the fact that we don't understand cognition. Yeah. So Oh my gosh, uh, I swear if we had another hour or something, I would dig in on and I'm going to put a I'm going to put a little place marker here for uh, Noam Chomsky started, you know, tearing into uh, uh, what was, you know, um, Dolly AI, OpenAI, GPT-3 and, uh, you know, and, and it's foibles. Um, but I know that man, we've got other questions to get into, but maybe a whole nother podcast we could spend digging into. Yeah, we, we can't, we can't make this like one of those, you know, four hour long Joe Rogan episodes or whatever. Like we'll have to try to stay concise. All right. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, definitely would be fun to dig into at some point in time because uh, I appreciate, you know, all the thoughts on that. Um, I guess jumping into the next topic, uh, yeah. if, if that is, let's say, um, you know, the, the kind of, 
um, way that you're approaching some of the problems uh, that, you know, that, that your company sees, uh, is there any underlying principle besides, you know, uh, th that you, you could say that you rely on in approaching those, those sort of problems? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, what I would say is that um, the, and it's it's interesting because we we were just talking about like segues very nicely into this that like, um, you know, yes, formalize those things that you can, and in fact, those things that you can formalize for the most part can be uh, handled by an AI. I mean, uh, th there are some like ex extraordinarily complex problems like you know in some cases seem somewhat abstruse like protein folding or like the traveling salesman problem or whatever that even though you can algorithmatize it you're not going to be able to com compute it easily in a, in a realistic amount of time but for the most part the problems that you have in business that you can algorithmatize are going to be done by you know an algorithm they're going to be performed by an algorithm they're going to be automated they're going to be ai is going to do it whatever the the problems that that can't be solved that aren't you know just hyper complex that but that can't be solved are problems that um uh have to do mostly with possibility uh and this is what possibility and analogy and this is what makes human cognition so unique and interesting right is that it is almost certainly it seems to me at least that that human cognition is fundamentally analogical uh we use analogy all the time when we think and analogy and possibility, I think, are deeply, uh, uh, you know, sort of um, interdependent. Uh, that, you know, if you can analogize something that you've encountered to something that you are encountering, you can see what could happen, right? Uh, and so, the the through line for me with possibility is also an analogy is also um, sort of. I guess to put it overly simply, like the future or the futures, the possible futures, right? Possibility space, what could happen? And so the the you know, what we see over and over again when we encounter what seem to be intractable problems with organizations, um, that that is the most useful in thinking about it and that and is often the most neglected thing. Uh, which is why maybe the problem isn't getting solved or whatever is, uh, you know, the, what is the really the possibility space on it? What do people see in the future for this? Definitely. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, um, honestly, it, it kind of touches so much on, on the next one. And I, I don't want you to have to repeat yourself to any degree. Uh, um, but I, I kind of wonder too, like, um, as far as the patterns that you see in some of the issues that are underlying these things, you know, are there any other sort of, um, you know, sort of wh whether it's patterns in the issues, patterns in the solve, are there any other sort of patterns that you've recognized by like, you know, approaching so many different companies, you know, sort of issues yeah. or problems? Well, you know, uh, I can answer that in part by expanding on this idea of, possibility in the future the the challenge is that you know i don't know if you've ever read zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance uh no but uh, i'm familiar with it yeah a guy named robert persig he wrote a follow-up book called lila that also you know sort of continues to expand on the themes in it but one of the things he talks about is that uh we have this assumption that what reason is supposed to do or science you know uh which is the sort of practical methodology of reason or whatever is to reduce the number of possibilities you know it could be this could be this could be this and we'll apply reason we'll apply a scientific process and we'll end up with the answer right um but uh you know as he points out like it actually the scientific process does the opposite it increases the number of possibilities and and, and th this is a fundamental concept of future studies uh you know so or futurology or whatever you want to call it, uh, applied futures or speculative futures, design futures, whatever, uh, is this notion that the, the, the further into the future you cast your vision, uh, the, the more uncertain it becomes, which means the wider the space of possibility uh, is, you know, the number of 
of differentiable trajectories increases dramatically the further into the future you look. Uh, and you don't have to go that far. I mean, what's going to happen a second from now is probably it's very likely that we're going to still be talking, right? Um, but what's going to happen, you know, five minutes from now or 20 minutes from now or an hour from now or, or 10 years from now? I mean, the further out you go, the more possibilities there are with which you ideally should be considering. So, so the challenge is, I think, and the, the, the pattern that emerges around this is that when problems, when, when concerted efforts are made to solve problems and they're not getting solved, it's almost always because there's a predisposition, this machine-based predisposition to say, well, it's just going to, here's the trend. This is what's going to happen. I know this is what's, the data supports it, you know, whatever we've got, you know, uh, all the reasons that the, the, uh, the algorithm has generated enough data, we've got the analytics, this is what's going to happen when problems do get solved, especially the problems that have to do with people, when they do get solved in a useful way, it's because there has been some uh, attempt made, a legitimate, deliberate attempt made to speculate to speculate uh, effectively about all the possibilities that really surround it. What are all the possible futures that surround this problem? Um, we also have, I mean, it's not just the machine that does this to us. I mean, there's some cognitive biases that that get in the way too. Like we, we don't want to consider collapse scenarios. What, like, what if everything falls apart, you know? Uh, or what if uh, instead of like things getting better or falling apart, they just kind of stay the way they are? Like, what does that kind of future look like? Um, you would think people would be into transformative futures, like where, things change so radically that like the basis for understanding the problem shifts, it, it doesn't solve the problem, it obviates it. You'd think people would be into that, but we don't rarely do, it doesn't seem to me in my experience that you know stakeholders in a big problem, rarely do they really consider what a transformative scenario might be you know, for, for the problem that they're addressing. So that's to me the big pattern is when problems don't get solved well, um, it's because uh, very the, the the future was considered in a very tight, narrow, myopic way. Uh, when problems do get solved usefully, it's because uh, the the there some effort has been made to consider in a very open way all the possibilities that surround that problem. Cool. Um, it, that's interesting, and I I think it's based on like uh, the way you know definitely um, you kind of mentioned it. It's the way we've been trained to think. Uh, you know, and I think people have been trained to think and it's very easy to follow in those patterns. Uh, and that's why uh, having that, you know, maybe outside opinion can be extremely helpful to help people visualize something that their brain may never have arrived at. <laughs> right. Well, or or that their brain would have arrived at or can arrive at easily, but they didn't know they could think that way or they weren't given the opportunity to think that way or the political circumstances optimized in favor of just, you know, thinking about and saying those things that are safe, which are, which is to say those things that meet the very narrowly defined expectations about what should happen next, you know. Definitely. I'll give you an example. We did work um, uh, several years ago with the uh, St. Louis Economic Development, uh, you know, partnership. And they they were looking at sort of reimagining their strategy for for communications in general and um especially their digital stuff but just in general they 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 wanted to sort of rebuild their strategy redesign their strategy and so we did foresight work with them and w one of the tools that we used with them in in one of these sessions was to start with a provocative scenario in the future and then craft um, narratives around that, which we then would comb through and look for what futurists call signals, which are, um, you know, little local trends that if they were to blow up and become full-scale trends could have a significant, significant impact on whatever the challenges that they were facing. And uh, the, the provocative scenario that we gave them is, you know, it's 10 years in the future and Apple has made this surprise announcement that they're moving their corporate headquarters to St. Louis. Like, now what? Right. Mm -hmm. And so they construct all these narratives about what would happen. You know, like here are awful things that could happen. Here are amazing things that could happen. Here are 
like uh, sort of like boring St. Louisy kind of what you would expect kind of things that would happen. Here are absolutely transformative things that could happen. And uh, we went through it, looked for signals, and there are a bunch of them. And but one of them that that kept showing up and that we came back to them with is that uh, um, there is significant potential in St. Louis for civic unrest because of socioeconomic issues, gentrification, racial issues, et cetera, right? Um, we gave them this report two days before Michael Brown was shot. Wow. Right? And and, they, and it's funny, too, because they're like, oh, God, how did you know this? And we're like, we didn't know this. This was your, you guys thought this way, you know? The only thing that we did was provide you the occasion through a tool that was designed to allow you to think in a way that normally you wouldn't you know know that you could think you know um and so that's what i'm talking about when you when you when you open up that that space that possibility space you get people to really speculate about it uh you will suddenly see that you knew things that you didn't realize you knew um and that those things actually have an impact on how you design your solutions whether you're aware of it or not so becoming aware aware of it is you know is obviously deeply valuable to to designing more effective uh, more robust solutions for sure um as you're obviously you're thinking through these you know complex issues and solutions and and uh you know stuff for your clients and i'm sure have you know uh, a life outside of work uh <laughs> but what's the thing that kind of keeps you inspired and motivated for all this oh well you know i don't know i'm i'm sort of a nerd um and um I read a, a lot of philosophy and, but, um, I also, you know, um, I'm also deeply interested the the part of philosophy. I mean, I'm interested in philosophy in general, but the part that is often the most interesting to me is sort of, uh, generally axiology, which is, uh, you know, sort of, you got ontology, like what is reality and you got epistemology, which is, uh, how do we know things or what do we, what does it mean to know things? And then axiology is like, how should we act? And epistemology and um, axiology are two deep interests of mine. And like, how do we know things? And then like, what should we do with that? Um, and so politics ends up being a big part of that, but not like politics, the way it plays out uh, conventionally, but just like the political theory that surrounds it. And, and how does that political theory change over time? And, uh, and my 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 suspicion is that the, the the theories that we construct about how we should act collectively are often a reflection of the the tool set and the the, the sort of epistemic posture that that we have so like this whole thing about like machines you know like and everything's a machine and all that kind of stuff um i think a lot of what we see in both sort of colloquial pedestrian uh, uh, political philosophy, like just what the average person thinks about how politics works, uh, to even the more, uh, you know, I don't know, um, academic descriptions of political theory that, that are the, the, the ones of the, those things that are the most like prominent and popular right now are really a reflection of that whole machine world. So I really like watching sort of, what are people saying about how we should be acting and how we should be interacting with each other and and learning from that sort of what it suggests about uh you know the the tools that we're using and how we understand our world and what we think we know about the world so that i can be more useful in trying to help with those things uh beyond that i you know i like to play music whenever i can um and uh and of course you know the sort of things that everybody sort of draws inspiration from, you know, my family and, uh, uh, yeah. So, I'm gonna, yeah. I'll, I'll name one. You told me the other day cooking too. <laughs> oh no, that's a good point. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I'm, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I'm probably somewhere on the autism spectrum, uh, which is, I don't know, maybe obvious if anybody's listened to like five minutes of this, you know, little dissertation here, but, uh, uh, and so I'm I'm sort of obsessed with Japanese culture, I think because it's so like protocol oriented and uh, rigorous and so forth. And so uh, I like to cook Japanese food. Uh, and so, but then there's a crossover. I mean, I like cooking in general, and part of it is like 
really digging in and trying to understand well how exactly do you get the best you know out of this thing cooking you know and like what was the antecedent of that like well how did uh, you know how did somebody discover that effect that causes things to brown when they're cooked in a certain way and what did where did that come from and uh why when you um uh make cacio e pepe do you want to uh take the pasta off the heat before you add the the sort of paste of of romano and and pasta water uh, so that it doesn't separate the fat and you don't get stringiness and you get this nice cream and like all that kind of stuff like i really enjoy you know learning how that works and then experimenting with it and failing and failing and failing until you finally get it right and there's a lot of joy in that i think yeah you, Plus you get to feed people so that's always good too Oh, totally. Yeah. And food makes people happy. Uh, and, and you actually, you, you had mentioned too, like, you know, epistemology in the Japanese culture, and there are just so many phrases in Japanese about, you know, ways of being, uh, mm -hmm. and, and definitely, and the axiology of ways of being actually, uh, mm -hmm. that, that it makes me think of like, there's, you know, it's things like wabi-sabi and, you know, like that. Love wabi-sabi. Yeah. <laughs> Love wabi-sabi. Have you, have you encountered, uh, Gar Reynolds? presentation zen if you get a chance it, i think its site is just presentationzen.com uh he's like i think an american expat lives in japan then he got really uh you know uh sort of deep on um on presentation like how to give a good presentation how to design it well and whatever uh but because he was living in japan when he was working on all this stuff he ended up talking a lot about wabi-sabi and how you might apply that in in presentations um but I mean, it's a, it's a, that's a whole, you know, there's an entirely other uh, rabbit hole that we could, uh, we could go down, you know, presentations and all that. We'll, but, we'll uh, mark that as yet another yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> but his stuff is definitely worth checking out. And that's where I first learned about Wabi Sabi, which is sort of the, the uh, antithesis in some ways of Western aesthetics, you know, where we, you know, value symmetry and, and uh the sense of like youth or or, or you know that that the thing was just made and it's preserved in this perfect state you know an english garden or the acropolis or whatever or at least the acropolis before it was destroyed um you know like i say symmetry and perfection and you know no air whereas wabi-sabi is natural decay and asymmetry and uh and man they you know the japanese because they that's an aesthetic value for them and it has been for you know i don't know centuries at least like they're 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 manifestations of that you know a japanese garden where you can't see the whole garden from any one spot you got to like traverse the whole thing mm -hmm. the beauty of that is just astounding it's astounding mm-hmm yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, sorry. All right. I'll, I'll promise not to go to rabbit hole too, but even some of like the words and repeated words for things that are aesthetic, like, uh, like smooth, like, uh, or, or even textural, like surut, surut. And like, surut, I learned surut. that. From, yeah. And, and it's so cool. It's very pleasant to say, but it's also like, it's describing something very like tangible too, which is cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In fact, one of the biggest challenges for me, um, in trying to learn the language is uh well first of all they, they're the fastest speakers in the world i don't know if you know this but it's true uh, but they often have like these uh you know repeated uh consonants um well that you know their syllables uh which they'll just fire off like a machine gun it's like uh you know like the the adjective for warm is atatakai 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 right uh but if it's if it's not warm then it's atatakunai, atatakunai, right? And like, it takes so much work for me to be able to, like, uh, with with any uh, alacrity, be able to pull off those repeated, uh, you know, consonant syllables like that. Uh, but man, and when you hear the, the, the native Japanese speaker, uh, you know, fly through those things, there's something really compelling and beautiful about it. Uh, it's like it's very sharp uh yeah anyway yeah. that's another whole another rabbit hole yeah. i i know i could i could keep going but if <laughs> uh i i i definitely I, I have a great affinity for it as well and i my wife's japanese anyway so like yeah i know oh, another podcast i swear you could probably mark three of these we're gonna do 
Um, okay, well, I guess I'll jump into, are there any lessons you feel like you've learned along the way that would be helpful to, you know, maybe other uh, agency owners, consultancies, people that, you know, that you're like, man, if I knew this, I would have, you know, done this differently. But any lessons you feel like you've taken away from what you've gotten out of your, your work? Uh, gosh, you know, in, if there's something that I don't know, maybe is sort of universally applicable, it's, uh, and it's so maybe it seems, uh, trivial or trite or something, but it's like, uh, um, well, you, you, I don't think anybody, I don't think anybody really, uh, just sort of knows what they want to do and goes out and just does it. Uh, I think that, you know, especially young people or whatever, you know, that there's a great deal of like, well, what the hell am I supposed to do that is involved in figuring out what to do? Um, I think there are people who from very young ages are led down a particular path or whatever, but that the only way that anybody successfully gets on with doing something of real value is just by doing things, right? Just do stuff. And, and so, and then if you have, you know, sort of, if you, if you get any, get any traction with it, just keep doing it, you know? Um, you know, I, I think especially earlier in the process of being an entrepreneur, <clears throat> you know, I had experiences, especially because the stuff that we do is somewhat, you know, if not novel, at least maybe apparently a little weird or something. Um, and, and building a business like that in St. Louis, which let's be honest, is not the most like, yeah, let's try crazy stuff kind of place to do things. Um, uh, you know, I got a lot of feedback and a lot of advice and whatever from people who are like, why can't you just do something more conventional? Why can't you make your business more conventional? Why could, you know, and, and it gave me a lot of doubt about whether I was doing the right thing or um, whether I knew that I should be doing what I'm doing, you know, or whatever. But really just persevering in doing the things that you know once you start doing something you find that you're drawn to do this part of it or that part of it more just keep doing that um and uh and then eventually you'll be able to you know look back over a long enough period of time and say ah i'm this is now meaningful i have made progress it matters to me whatever um but i think especially these days with this whole like crisis of meaning thing that i was talking about especially with young people, there are a lot of folks who are just like, I don't, I don't even know what I'm supposed to do, or I don't know why I should do. Like, did, I don't even know that anything I could do would have any meaning. Um, so just acting and not worrying about whether or not it's meaningful at first or whether you believe, uh, and then allowing belief and allowing meaning to emerge from action. That seems to me a, a really important thing. Maybe that wasn't so trite after all. Maybe no, no. I mean, I could boil it down and make it sound super hackneyed, like lean in, you know, but right. no, I, I follow I, your heart. Yeah, <laughs> I, I definitely know. I appreciate that. And I feel like that's that's good for anybody to know, especially as, you know, anybody starting a business, doing something, you know, anything different to maybe, uh, uh, you know, quote unquote, the norm. But I think that's helpful. Um, cool. Well, uh, how you know would you say that your team is critical to you executing on um you know what you do uh well oh gosh lots of ways uh the, you know the one thing i would say about that right out of the gate is that i've learned uh you know in part through my study of uh you know um Psych, uh, psychometrics and um, developmental psychology, um, uh, sort of characterological insights uh, that, you know, sort of every, every different kind of neurological or psychological predisposition is important. Um, I think there is a, a maybe a, a somewhat, um, you might say, immature or, or, uh, easy sort of cognitive bias or, or presumption that people can make that if someone thinks differently than the way I think that they're wrong and I'm right, you know, um, 
And uh, so you encounter somebody with a different, uh, you know, set of character traits and you just say, well, whatever, you know, uh, I'm going to stay away from that. But uh, especially, well, I think it's a recapitulation of our own minds that like we are actually, uh, was it Emerson that said, do I contradict myself? So what? I contain multitudes, right? Like you are not a monolith. You have different competing interests. Um, they're, they're, you are not an extrovert or an introvert. You are both. And these things compete with one another. And maybe one of them shows up more often than the other, but they're, all, they're both there, you know. And so we, we have all these things. Well, a good team is that same way. And so there are going to be characters who represent different strengths, different abilities because of their psychological temperament, you know, they're because of their characterological traits. And so... So that's one thing is that like I appreciate the team in part because I know it's made up of people who think in different ways, who who show up cognitively in different ways. They act, they respond to needs differently. Um, and all of those things are necessary to a cohesive functioning team. So that's that's one important part of it. The other is, and this is maybe also just sort of uh, more uh pedestrian kind of insight uh but like you know i mean and maybe not maybe not like uh i i think uh epistemic humility is really important like maybe one of the most important things that is, is too often undervalued and and uh not taken seriously enough by enough people like i I have acquired a great deal of domain knowledge in different areas and whatever. Um, but I am, if, if I am convinced of anything, it's that while I can accept certain things as provisionally true because of what I've learned, I always have a fundamental openness to the possibility that there's more to know and that I could be wrong. And like a good team, it seems to me, should be about in part constantly reinforcing mutually for everyone uh, a sort of epistemic humility like be both confident and say provisionally what i believe is true provisionally and and i have i have this you know uh sort of it's almost like a tick at this point but i have this practice that i've cultivated for years of like i almost never say it is this i almost always say it seems to me that or it is my experience that, or I have found that, or some permutation of that, um, even when it's something I feel very strongly about. Um, and it's because what I'm trying to do is invite conversations so that if people are going to agree with me, it's because they have chosen to. Uh, and if they're not going to agree with me, they haven't been presented with uh, the requirement that they tell me that I'm wrong because I haven't stated emphatically or with epistemic certainty that this is how it is. I've just said, it seems to me that, and that gives them the room to say, well, it seems to me that this, you know, this other thing or whatever, and then we can figure it out. Um, but like, to me, that's a really fundamental, that, that sort of humility, like not just sort of giving into the temptation of hubris uh, to say, well, this is what it is, you know, um, and a good team, I think, uh, you know, tries to cultivate that across the entire uh, culture of the team. Wow, uh, I I definitely agree with um with that you know sort of stance. Um, and 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 actually, it, you had mentioned having a tick about that of not necessarily trying to be so definitive, not necessarily with a lack of confidence, you know, confidence right. in general about your position. But as in when you declare something so definitively, it does, it can kind of suck the air out of the room too. And that's what mm -hmm. you don't want to do because inviting those other opinions or ideas or merely stating that this is coming from your perspective is something that can help at least let others listening know that you're like, well, this is the way I feel. You can feel whatever way you want to about it, you know, um, because literally there could be a lot of other ideas that get squashed because of something sounding too too definitive too sharp right yeah right and there's like two things therefore that i'm trying to avoid in my own behavior and that i find difficult with others one and it's it's really you know the hubris thing can play out in one of two ways either it can play out in that like i'm always making definitive statements right and um and therefore i'm not learning from anyone else right uh or at the other end of the continuum like 
I'm not ever really saying what I think at all, right? That lack of confidence, you know, like, uh, and, and I'm making assumptions about other people's beliefs um, and constructing narratives in my own mind and never checking them down. So I'm also not learning anything, right? On either end of that spectrum, you don't learn anything, right? Um, you know, and, and in, on either end of that spectrum, you also are likely to become increasingly hubristic, increasingly certain. I don't ever say anything, but I become certain of my, my narrative about what other people think and are doing, what their motives are and whatever. Or I'm always making definitive statements um, and I'm very certain about what I, and, and, and I'm also becoming more certain that I know better than the others and that what they think is wrong, you know. Um, I think real confidence comes from being able to say, it seems to me that, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then you, you like are able to grow more confident about what you think you know, because it's run up against more possibilities and more people and it's being reinforced when it's being reinforced, or you're learning more carefully like where it applies and where it doesn't apply. Uh, but you're also uh, growing more confident about your ability to learn because when you're wrong, when it shows up from other people that like they have a point of view that changes yours, you've learned something, you know? Spoken it's like just, a true scientist, you know? Yeah, like, right, yeah, right, exactly. The, the data shows this, the evidence is here, that, but you know. <laughs> But the so, ideal, the idealized notion of science. Yeah, for yes, sure. Right. Yes. <laughs> um, well, I'm going to flip flop these because like this touches on the team a little bit. And it's uh, that, you know, you employ futurists. And I feel like that's, you know, not a job title that everybody has a position for at their company. Um, but, you know, as you have some of these people on staff uh, and it and it kind of sounds like this, and you know, what we've been talking about. But, you know, are, are there any like giant global issues that you're like, wow, I really wish we could solve this or, 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 or you know, be thinking about this, uh, you know, in some capacity or like, you know, just try to tackle those problems that maybe you don't get a chance to in your everyday work? Yeah, well, I mean, um you know the, the 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 major sort of global challenge uh narratives uh, that you hear about all the time uh are interesting to me but not deeply interesting because by the time they get turned into narratives that can be understood by you know uh, the general public or whatever uh they've like sort of all the antecedent challenges that are inside of them have been collapsed down into the narrative that everybody can understand. So, uh, you know, so I, I, I'm not as interested by those things as I am in things like, you know, like the crisis of meaning thing that I brought up. I mean, I, I don't think the, uh, the, the, the breadth of the ways in which this challenge that we have with, uh, with mythic narrative, with meaning, with the ability to communicate meaning, uh, with having like lost our mythos. Um, I don't think people, the breadth of, of the effect of that is really understood. Um, that uh, everything from, you know, sort of, I don't know, like something like the great resignation or, you know, um, the, the, um, the polarization of our culture, uh, um, the, the, um, a sort of growing, almost nihilistic kind of antipathy to uh, the foundations of our culture, you know, as it plays out practically, like everything from um, our, our system of governance to uh, our economic models, you know, whatever, like th there's deep antipathy toward those things, uh, especially among, you know, millennials and Gen Z and that sort of thing. Like, this is all crisis of meaning stuff, it seems to me. Like, if we don't know why, in fact, there, there's a good deal of it, I think, even present in our sense of ourselves, you know, that like, I have no no meaning, you know. Um, the Steven Weinberg, the Nobel physicist, he said, uh, uh, you know, uh, the more we know about, so I'm paraphrasing here, the more we come to understand about the cosmos, uh, the more meaningless it appears to be, right? Um, and he's a committed materialist too, a naturalist. You know, his whole thing is, uh, you know, philosophically, 
you know, uh, he said he also said something like uh, all the cause the arrows of causation point downward, uh, meaning it's all math. Everything's just math, which also eliminates like free will, right? Everything ju it's just you know determinist, you know, sort of stuff. It's just all if you just understand the equations, you know, we can describe everything. Like you thinking that you're making decisions is an illusion. It's a, it doesn't really happen. Well, that's that seems really deeply meaningless to me and um and i think that affects us in a really deep way and you know like um i don't know if you've ever read faust uh but you know the story about this guy who makes a deal with the devil so that he can achieve things he wants to achieve and goethe right and the, the emissary that comes to him to like strike the deal uh, is mephistopheles and he a couple of times in the story he's very uh sort of um you know unambiguous about what his his uh his project is he says i am uh i am here to help you see the meaninglessness of existence because like think about this you're going to suffer your whole life you're going to experience nothing but suffering and the suffering is likely to get worse and not better everybody that you love and that you know is going to suffer you're going to die they're going to die they're probably going to suffer deeply in the process of dying infants die like he's like so tell me about this whole idea of like a god that is good or meaning in life or any of that kind of stuff. he's like none of that exists it's 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 all it's all a ruse to try to get you to be controllable he said so really you should just look out for no try to eke out whatever little bit of pleasure you can for yourself and don't care about whether it's good or bad because the only possible thing that could be good is the opportunity to experience some of that pleasure to me that is you know the quintessential narration of the danger of meaninglessness you know um indulgence and, and hedonism <laughs> well nihilism right yeah right yeah right because you could well you could sort of justify anything on the back of meaninglessness you know but certainly awful things right mm -hmm. and so you know uh i worry about our ability to have vitality in our cultural institutions like why should you have a business why should you work for anybody you know why should you you know why should you churn out more iphones more baubles more you know stuff that doesn't matter that nobody needs nobody cares about why did none of it matters you know um and like that is i don't think it is overstating the situation to suggest that the predisposition to think that way about our world is growing uh you know it's 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 an increasingly common sentiment you see it all over you know social media reddit is just like a cesspool of this kind of thought you know what i mean so at any rate my my point is just that like uh that if there is a global problem that i want to solve it's that and um you asked about futurists and i didn't really tie that in but of course i think that's a big piece of it as well i don't know if we're out of time but uh we theoretically we're we're like three minutes over. If you have a few more minutes, I got like two questions, and that's yeah, it. yeah, Go. yeah, yeah. But uh, but that that's cool. And I, uh, I you know, ah, uh, gosh, I'd I'd go down a path with you on that one, but I'll, I'll I'll hold it and I'll get through these these last two questions. The first one is, um, you know, in another podcast, and, and this is because I actually I noticed on LinkedIn that you have designer as part of your title. And, uh, mm -hmm. and and I spoke to uh, Noriko uh, Yuasa, who's actually a professor uh, at uh, Webster University, and uh, and and we had a, a long um, conversation about her and teaching, you know, uh, the next sort of generation of designers. And uh, anyway, and I, I got the chance to ask her, like, why does the world need more designers? Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, and, and even in earlier in this podcast, you mentioned that that you may want to think of your own company as like a design consultancy. But in general, do you have any sort of reason why you feel like the world might need more designers? Well, um, uh, yeah, okay, that's an interesting question. I, I don't know the etymology of the word design. Well, I think I read somewhere once that it's 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 french and its origin and it has to do with like sort of a scale i think it, the original the the word that is the origin word is like has something to do with sketching or like a preliminary sketch or something like that but if i if i try to take it apart and think about what might be in it and this is probably just 
totally airsats, uh, uh, you know, anal etymological analysis. But you've got D, which is a, you know, a French prefix, a negative prefix that means something like off or removed from uh, or something like that. And then you've got sign, which I think of, you know, semiotics, uh, you know, sojourner, uh, you know, this idea that uh, a sign is just um, um, a, a, an, an utterance or, um, you know, an attempt to, it is, it is the, the physical manifestation of a communicative attempt. So like a literal stop sign or, or the, the sound um, or, uh, you know, scratches on a paper or whatever, you know, letters or whatever. And so design would be to sort of remove from uh, this, this signifier, right? So in other words, like sort of to pull something out of abstraction. So what that it, it, D also can sort of imply something about below, right? And so, so I'd like to think that design maybe says something like, uh, you know, um, we're going to take something out of an abstraction or an undifferentiated fused state and we're going to reify it. We're going to turn it into something real, right? You know, um, and so if you do think about it that way, well, then it's not just, you know, sort of graphic design, which is a common misconception about design. It's really any attempt to take that which is undifferentiated uh, or, 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 that which is completely abstracted and turn it into something that can be used to, to, to turn it into something real. Um, and so then th if that's true, then it's like, well, sort of like all the problems that we face are ultimately design problems, you know? Um, and, and that there may be a process of, um, you know, sort of defining the probleming, right? Defining the problem well, where you open up the problem and you 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 get more abstract, uh, but then the design process is the process by which you close it back down, you know, to something real that can be used to address the problem once you understand what the problem is. Um, so it's you know it's sort of like it's sort of like everything, right? I mean, once you establish a machine in your business, if you manufacture widgets or whatever, and maybe you think you don't ever have to think about design again, but something's going to change the marketplace will change the world will change the tools you use the systems you use will change um so yeah so design is sort of everything in many ways yeah wow uh, i dig in on um the prompts uh in which you provide dolly ai in order to uh <laughs> almost come up with those answers that it is about defining, just like you said, defining those kind of questions a little bit better, whatever those inputs are theoretically to, to get potentially the right answers. But it's uh it is very interesting. And, and yeah, I feel like there's, there's ways to solve. If you want to think about it in, you know, general terms is like people who are designers using that design language to solve problems I feel like there, there's almost like the, in the mind of a person, quote unquote, who could be a designer, seeing things in a different way too. They're, you know, being trained, let's say, you know, whether it's formal or informal, to try to make those things come to life. I feel like is uh is one of those things that's it's it's hard to it's hard to describe, but it's interesting that it is like um the language in which somebody can use to bring about a solution that maybe has never existed before and uh and and whether that's visual whether that's you know design wise whether that's creating manufacturing operation uh, operation that has never you know come into existence before but it's kind of like i you know and you said it right at the end we rely on design for everything so yeah yeah i agree cool uh, all right, cool. And then last one. This one's a softball, unless it's going right. to be really hard. But you know, it's a little uh, cliche. Uh, but what's okay. your book on an island? Hmm. Well, I'm tempted to say, you know, something like, no, oh, I don't know. You know, so, like something by 
Marcus Aurelius or Epictetus or something, you know, like, uh, you know, some sort of stoic thing with filled with aphorisms so that like the, you know, the, the soul crushing loneliness of being by yourself on an island for however long, you know, is something you can contend with or, uh, but I don't know. I, I suspect that when you, the one thing you would probably miss more than anything is, uh, is a sense of connection to your humanity. And so maybe something like, I don't know, the collected works of Shakespeare or something like I'd want stories, you know, um, especially stories that were rich, you know, human experience, rich kind of stories. Um, um, so yeah, something like that, I would say. Um, I mean, I don't know if that quite captures your, well, like one book kind of thing. Uh, but you know, something like that, you know, no, that, that that's good. I mean, out of all the, you know, sort of philosophical ideas that you've kind of walked through, uh, it, it, you know, sometimes maybe it does. It comes back to something if you, if you have a lot of time by yourself that, yeah, you just want to read nice stories and you could read them over and over and apply your own meaning to them in, a, mm -hmm. in way, whichever way that you wanted to and reinterpret them. Uh, and I feel like that's a, yeah, interesting way of looking at it. Well, um, Wow, that was that that was definitely it was really great to, you know, kind of go through all of that. Definitely great to, you know, get your answers on, you know, a wide range of topics. And it was super, you know, cool to have a conversation. I know we've had a, a, a couple in real life, uh, but you know, I really appreciate having you on the podcast. So thank you so much, Elliot. Thank you as well. It was really uh, a pleasure and an honor to uh to be on your show and have this conversation. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. Well, this has been another episode of Mix and Matchbox. Uh, I am Brent Feldman, and we will be back again soon with more content.